We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land in which we record this podcast today, the Arakwal people of the Bunjalong Nation, and pay our respects to Elders past and present. Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. Hello, Jade. Hello, Soph and everybody listening. How are you today? Well, I've got something to say that I'm very happy about, but I don't think you're going to be quite as happy that I'm happy about this. What? So my kids for the first time today are back at daycare in two weeks. And I know you're on school holidays, so I'm sorry. But no. While we were away, it was fine. I didn't mind that they weren't at daycare. Obviously, it wasn't an option. But my kids go from Monday to Thursday and we got back from Melbourne on Thursday afternoon. So it was like we literally got back as they would have finished daycare for the week. And I normally so look forward to Friday, Saturday, Sunday because I'm like, it's like family time. We plan fun activities. We have fun together, et cetera, et cetera. But this Friday came around and I was like, oh, God. (laughs) So I'm just putting it out there. Anyone who parents out there without daycare or help, good for you because I don't think I'm cut out for it. It was fine once we were away. Once we got home, it was like they all of a sudden decided that they were sick of one another. They just decided, oh, what can we do to just really fuck with mum and dad? And they did it. And so this morning they were out the door (laughs) to daycare. I've got so much life admin done. I've been so productive. I've stared at Pearl because I feel like for two weeks I (laughs) haven't been able to have that one-on-one time with her. I've breathed her in. She's probably sick of me. Anyway, we're back in equilibrium now. How are you? And I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, you should be. No, I'm not in equilibrium at all. For for the first time, it's been like, I kind of worked out that it's almost three weeks of school holidays for some reason, because they finished on like a Thursday and they go back to school on a Wednesday. So it's like shy of three weeks, which is not fabulous. (laughs) And look, I know it sounds like a bit of a whinge, but school holidays is so much. Like it's the I'm bored, it's the fighting, it's the fighting, it's the fighting, it's the fighting. It is I'm hungry. It's just (laughs) constant. And when you're trying to throw in like exercise and work and a whole, you know, number of things, it just becomes quite overwhelming. But not only that, I woke up to this fluttering sound this morning and I'm like, no, I was like, what is that? I can hear it all night. It's like a fucking giant moth. And I look closer and I'm like, is that, is that a micro bat? No. Surely there's not a, so I sat up. I have full body chills. I'm not kidding. I sat up and I was like. No, it's there's not a bat in the house. Like we've had snakes, <laughs> but surely not a bat. Everyone's asleep. I'm like, Jay, don't wake anyone up. Try and do this like really slowly. No, nah, next minute just flies into my face, goes around the whole room, down the hallway, in Mia's room, and I'm like, ah! everyone up, everyone's awake. 
everyone's trying to get this goddamn bat out of the house. Anyway, we eventually got it out. I don't know how it happened, how it got in, but I was up from 5.45 this morning in a state of shock. And then, nah, that is not a way to wake up. And then I'm looking outside and I'm looking at all these, like usually when I wake up, I have a coffee and I look at it like the birds like slowly coming in. I'm like hyperventilating going, oh, no, okay, no, it's not a bat. It's just, it's they're just birds. They're just birds and they're not coming But it me. was a bat. That was a bat. I don't mean to freak you out, but do the diseases is there rabies or anything? Well, probably. I've got dogs. There's probably rabies already in my house, so you know, bring it on. But I know each week I come on and I say a different animal that I'm not a huge fan of, but I can't <laughs> stand animals that flap. Bats, <laughs> moths, freak me. I, I'm happy. Butterflies can stay. They're beautiful. Moths, yuck. <laughs> Birds mainly yuck unless they're sitting up in a tree looking nice and I can just look at them. You do not know. We used to have chickens and when I used to pick them up and they would just flap, I liked the chicken, but when they flapped, I just can't handle the flapping. Uh, Give me a snake. Okay, the universe is going to turn around and give me a fucking snake. I don't actually want a snake. But give me a snake over a bat, even a baby bat, any day. You're a liar. You literally, we went, we had something we were doing, I think, last year. And we're out just under a tree. Next minute, Sophie sees a bird not even moving It was a magpie. Then she just drops to the ground, (laughs) drops to the ground, does a roll. I was like, fuck, have you got some new army moves I don't know about? But she's freaking petrified. So, yeah. Magpies scare the bejesus out of me. Spring is, it's like, so my birthday is in September and it's like, woo, birthday month, ah, 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 swoopy month. You no longer can leave the house. You're the helmet and the spiky things coming out of the helmet. One time I sacrificed my children to the magpie because I got (laughs) swooped going down this street. Goldie was a newborn, Poppy was two, and I tilted the pram backwards and hid underneath (laughs) the pram, like just like magpie, take my child, take either of them, whichever one you want. I was hidden underneath the pram and I was so worried that – someone in their house was going to be filming and I'd end up on like brown cardigan or something because I was just running down the street <laughs> screaming with I think I grabbed Poppy's bike helmet because she decided she didn't want to ride anymore and we had it over my head like they were just a free-for-all. I don't want to jinx it but I honestly sat there this morning and I'm like if a murderer came in, I in the middle of the night, I'd be like you know what I've had snakes, I've had bats, just Come at me. I don't even care that is anymore. such a lie. You and I have both admitted that anytime our partners go away. I've changed my mind. We cannot sleep. I've changed my night. mind. I've changed my mind. I've had it. I've absolutely <laughs> it's had bats it. It's bats now. Yeah. Now I have an absolutely incredible, I don't even know what category this fits under. Okay. I know we said last week that we we're going to start a category where did Beyond the Bump yes. inappropriately start playing for you. This is not that, but I feel like it's of that genre. Good, Okay. Okay. This is not me. This is what someone sent in. Sure. The new update on iPhone means you can set your wallpaper to change to photos in your camera roll randomly. Have you seen that? I have. It's really beautiful because you can get like rotating kids' pictures and stuff coming up. 
My husband works away a lot and loves to send a random dick pic <laughs> just for lols. So romantic, I know. They save automatically into my camera roll as he sends them via WhatsApp. I usually receive the image, laugh, send a disgusted face back and move on with my life. Sure you do. Is this sure me? You do a great titty shot. <laughs> yeah. Last week, my older male boss tapped my phone screen oh. in a meeting to check the time, thinking it was his. <gasps> Much to his, mine, and a few of our colleagues' disgust, <laughs> they all saw a terribly angled, flaccid <laughs> dick and saggy <laughs> balls on my wallpaper. I died and laughed, but died. Rude or fabulous? What would you do? So she's one. She's got to have the conversation. Oh no, no, no! This isn't just like what I've chosen. Uh huh. I've actually like it's a slideshow that's randomly yeah. come up, and I've got random dick pics in my photo gallery. And oh, that wasn't a good one. I swear <laughs> it looks better when it's hard. <laughs> no, that's what they say. We don't care. You're like, oh no, I see that I don't all the know. time. I feel like a flaccid dicks. There's actually not many things worse, and I feel like you'd have to jump to their defense surely nah you know what if you're gonna send a flaccid dick pic you're gonna cop but he hasn't copped anything she's copped it yeah but you know what it's not my dick well it is my dick i guess but it's like you know what but what would you do would you let it slide or would you bring it up i'll be like how's that eh no i don't know what i'd do i'd laugh about it and then what would you do i have no idea i definitely talk this is similar to that situation that we were talking about when my dad decided when I was moving that he would take it upon himself oh, yeah. to clean out my bedside <laughs> table drawer, which had a vibrating, very realistic looking dildo in it. And I never brought that up. But to this day, I almost feel like I should have because, you know, you just never know. Maybe he never even saw it. Maybe, Maybe it he fell didn't out. know what it was. Maybe it hit him on the head as he was. No, no, sorry. We're not talking about the dildo anymore. Oh. We're talking about the dick on the wallpaper. Oh. Like maybe he never actually saw what it was. You saw I don't know. It. I don't you know what I'd do. I'd quit. I'd quit. I'd find a new job. I'd be on I'd be on LinkedIn that afternoon or seek looking for a new job. <laughs> do we have a mum hack? Or is that it? I don't have a mum pack, but a hack, but I've got another piece of good news. Go for it. My kids are sleeping in their own room. Hang on. You've been back for like a few days. How did this happen? So for anyone that doesn't know, since... Poppy was two, she's been sleeping in my bed. Since Goldie was around two, she's been sleeping in my bed. They are now five and three respectively. I moved out to the spare room because when we had Pearl, I was like, we cannot all be in one room. And every time we tried to get them back into their own room, they're like, no, we want to sleep in mum and dad's room. Anyway, when we were away, they slept in lots of like, we were at two different houses while we were away and they would just happily go off to bed in whatever bed we said was theirs we'd still lie down with them but they'd fall asleep and then they knew one of us would get up and go back to our bed and they just slept there instead so when we were coming back home I kind of prepped them and I was like guys you've you didn't need to sleep in mum and dad's bed while we're away why don't we try sleeping in your bed when we go home and it worked wow and they just like have happily gone off to their bed 
Disclaimer, Nick keeps falling asleep in there while he puts them to sleep <laughs> and often I don't see you until the next morning. So I have said to him, nothing's really changed that much. You're just sleeping with them in a different bed. If you could please refrain from falling asleep when you put them to bed so that we can like be back in our room together. But I feel like I'm on a bit of a power trip because like I'm back in my own room. Yeah, you feel feels, like you're you know, in charge, large and in charge. When you're a parent, you have very little control yeah. over those things. And I feel like I have some sense of power and control so whoever wants to you know if Nick wants to come sleep with me fine if he doesn't that's fine I feel I feel like I'm back being the matriarch of the house rather than my children there is something about just getting into your own king size bed and not having anyone in there for at least five minutes like it just you just want to have that feeling of like oh this is so nice well now you don't only have children to contend with you have micro bats as well but let's get into today's episode shall we (laughs) beautiful beth beautiful beth from birth with beth i'm sure many of you have come across her before we've also done an episode before about different models of care in pregnancy which you all loved she has such a beautiful manner of teaching Mm. where it's calm clear positive empowering we just love her and everything she does and we chatted all about inductions today so not so much why you're going to get an induction or if you should have an induction more the decision's been made to have an induction. What do you expect next? And I so wish I listened to this five years ago. And keep your ears peeled because this week we have a bonus episode dropping and it is bloody funny. It's juicy. It's a juicy one. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy. Hello, Beth, and welcome back to Beyond the Bump podcast. Before we get started, if our beautiful listeners don't know who you are, can you tell them a little bit about yourself? Hello. Thank you for having me back. Firstly, it's really nice to be here. I am a midwife. I live in Melbourne and I am the founder of Power Birth Education Courses, which are birth preparation courses that are ultimately designed to just get you feeling really informed and excited and positive about what's ahead, whatever that looks like. Now, we wanted to talk to you today. We're chatting all about inductions because you have an induction course that you do, an online course, I believe. Can you tell us a little bit about this course and why you decided to put it together? Yeah, for sure. So I have an online course called Positive Induction. And as a midwife, I was seeing that, you know, we know that a large portion of people are being induced. And more or less what those women get is a pamphlet from the hospital and then not much else information. And often the narrative around induction is quite negative and you know, because there there is a conversation to be had about the prevalence of induction and people's experience with it. But for a portion of people, they either choose induction because it feels right for them or they need an induction for medical reasons. And there was just such a big gap of information that was there to, to kind of be like, okay, this is the plan. This is what's happening. How can you feel really positive about it? How can you get your head around the process, how it differs from a spontaneous onset of birth and just kind of give people the tools to be like, okay, you know what, this is how I'm going to meet my baby and I want to feel really good about it. So that's why it's called positive induction. I think some people will hear the title and think like, are you saying induction is always a positive thing? And that's not the case. It's just about a bit of a mindset shift of like, if this is how you're going into labor, let's get you ready and let's get you feeling good. 
I so wish that I had done this course when I had my first. I chose to be induced with Poppy and have subsequently been induced with all three. And I know that I say that I've had three really positive birth experiences and that's not to downplay anyone else's birth experience. But I do like to say that because there is a lot of gloom and doom out there the minute you tell anyone you're going to get induced. But I mentally had to be induced with Poppy. I had pups rash, which is a super, super itchy rash and hadn't slept for two weeks. And I was literally a shell of a human. Like I was going out of my mind and I had done a birth course during my pregnancy that I loved, but it very much focused on quote unquote natural birth. And I remember saying to Nick, well, you know, if I choose to be induced, then my entire birth plan is going to go down the toilet. Like everything that I thought had to stem from me going into spontaneous labor. And Nick kind of turned to me and he goes, but what choice do you have? Like, you can't continue like this. So, you know, we've just got to reevaluate and start again. And I just remember I had that whole, you know, and we'll talk about it, the cascade of intervention in my mind that was like, if I choose an induction, then it is definitely going to mean this, this, and this, because all I'd ever heard was people talking about their negative experiences. Anyway, that didn't happen for me, but I think it's so important because as much as we can say we want to get the induction rate down and that's fantastic, at the end of the day, no matter how far we get that down, people are still going to need inductions. So they still need to know where to turn that they can get empowering information. Exactly right. And I think that both conversations can happen, right? We can have a conversation and go, you know what, at the moment, the last Mothers and Babies report in Australia stated that around 35% of all birthing women will get induced. And that, you know, that probably is a bit high. And there's a conversation to be had there about really looking at whether all of those women were given all of the options, all of the information and what the knock-on of that was. But as you say, Sophie, like there will always be a portion of people for whom induction is either And it's interesting you use the word choose, but your mental health sounds like it was under threat. Like that's not okay to feel that way. There will always be a portion of people who either want to make the informed decision to move forward with an induction or for whom the circumstances around their pregnancy, it's like this baby needs to come out now, either for your health or for their health. There is something, a feature about this pregnancy that means they are safer out than in. And so what are they meant to do with that narrative of just like, oh, we'll throw all your birth preferences out the window because none of them are possible. I just wholeheartedly don't believe that that's the case. So first off, what is an induction for first-time mums or mums that are going in being told that they may or may not get an induction? Yeah. So an induction is usually medicine or any procedure in which we start, we being care providers, start the labor as opposed to your body going into labor on its own. So there's a few different ways that can look. And I'm sure we're going to run through that. But at, at a base understanding, that's just if we are doing something to you that is bringing on labor, whether that's through medication or other means, that is an induction of labor. Would a stretch and sweep be an induction? Yeah, Yeah, it's funny. So it depends who you ask. But for me, I'm sort of like natural induction is sort of an oxymoron. Like induction by its definition means that we are doing something that is changing potentially the course of your body's spontaneous like path Mm. to 
to labor. And so stretch and sweep, I believe, is is a spectrum of induction. So mm. for anyone listening, it's a stretch and sweep is when a midwife or doctor physically inserts fingers inside the vagina to try to reach the cervix. And if we can touch the cervix, we try to then put a finger or two fingers inside the opening swivel it around, move it around, give it a a bit of a stretch and sweep, as the name says, and (laughs) with the hope that it releases hormones that then prompt labor to begin. So when we compare it to the full process, the full medical induction process, yes, some people might go, oh, it's a more natural approach. And it's up to you how you interpret that. It's not for anyone else to say, no, you didn't, you know, you were induced or no, you weren't. But it's kind of just a often a start point that if you know that there's an induction on the horizon, you might say, or your care provider might say, do you want me to do a stretch and sweep? Do you want to do a couple over a few days and see what happens? So what are the most common reasons that people get induced? Obviously, there's going to be way too many to list, but what are the most common? Common reasons that induction would happen would be gestational diabetes. If your baby's got, there's concern for your baby's growth. So either they're growth restricted or or they're small for their gestational age and they're thinking, "Mm, I don't know if the uterine environment is the best place for them. Then we've got the flip side, which will be, it's not actually recommended in the guidelines, but a very common reason that the conversation around induction will happen is that your baby is on the bigger side. And then really just other things like mum's conditions like high blood pressure, cholestasis, so issues with the liver, things like pups where we're going, okay, this is not sustainable for this mum. So basically any reason where the health of mum or baby, you know, we've got concerns and the benefits of staying in the uterus are outweighed by Mm. benefits of induction. In Australia, the most common reason a mum will be induced is because of what we call post-dates, so going beyond your due date. Pregnancy is a a spectrum, again, anywhere between 37 and 42 weeks is kind of deemed as your natural window to go into labor. Your baby's full term, they're going to be good on the outside. But typically after 40 weeks, hospitals and care providers will start to discuss having your baby out by the 42-week mark. And the reason and, and research behind that is to reduce the stillbirth rate. And people get super confused with that. You know, we had someone write in saying, I'm post-dates, my obstetrician wants me to have this baby now, but my midwife's telling me not to. When mm. there's so much conflicting information, how how do we as the birthing person make that decision? Like what does the research actually say? So I guess often there will be a... I always like to acknowledge that, you know what, midwives and obstetricians, we work beautifully together. The whole point is that we're a team. We're meant to collaborate and we do for the most part, but we come into birth with pretty different philosophies and we also have different exposure. Like obstetricians typically come into the room when things are not good, when things are complex, when things are stressful and scary. And so their view of birth is skewed and they are typically going to be skewed towards a risk adverse approach where like, let's do anything we can to reduce the chance of anything happening. And that's not all, but you know, understandably that lens is often applied through obstetric practice. It's their job. That's why we need them. Whereas midwives, our job is physiological birth, recognizing that for most people, pregnancy and birth is a significant but normal life event. So that I guess is where you're going to see sometimes a bit of a push-pull in terms of the advice. And it is really hard being on the receiving end of that because you don't, I think we should say from the outset, like we're also protective of our birth choices and birth. that is why birth can be such a charged topic because we're all just trying to do the best for our babies with the information that we've got. 
So look, in terms of how you make the decision, so tricky. I always say, whenever something's recommended, say to your care provider, do you mind running me through the evidence that's informing your recommendation and specifically how that evidence applies to me? So not necessarily what the policy says or the research says, but what is it about my pregnancy in this moment and the features of my pregnancy experience that make you think that this is the best possible decision for me and really try to hone it in and be more individualized than just making sweeping recommendations. In terms of the evidence around induction, I think it's important to acknowledge that the evidence is not conclusive, which is tricky. We have a couple. <laughs> unfortunately, birth is not black and white. If only it was. Actually, no, I'd be totally out of a job. But, <laughs> but at the moment, the culture around induction certainly is being informed by something called the ARRIVE trial. And, and I don't know if you've had someone on to talk through the ARRIVE trial. No, I've heard like points of it, but I, yeah, no one's spoken through it, I guess. Yeah. And look, we won't deep dive, but just top line, there was some research that came out of the States in, I think it was 2018, and it was a randomized control trial that included around 6,100 participants approximately. And it found that um, they, they compared what happened when they induced low-risk, otherwise healthy mums and another group that didn't get induced. And what they found incidentally was that the group of women that were being induced electively at 39 weeks or routinely, I should say, had a slightly lower unplanned cesarean birth rate. So it was 19% in the induction group and it was 22% in the spontaneous group. So I guess that recently, in recent times anyway, has heavily been informing, particularly in obstetric practice, understandably doctors are going, okay, well, we've got this research. And if someone's sitting across from me and saying, my ultimate goal is to avoid cesarean birth, then that is often why people are being steered towards induction of labor, despite being otherwise healthy and despite no other medical reason. But we've also got a really big study that came out of Australia in 2021 that dealt with many, many more people that found more or less the opposite and that induction of labor was associated with increased intervention. So again, it's really difficult and it's it's hard to say this is 100% what you should do or 100% what you shouldn't do. But if you are otherwise healthy, it's just worth knowing that you know, that ARRIVE trial, we need to proceed with caution and we need to start taking on board what other research is saying as well. And I think regardless, if you are pregnant and you're going to give birth, it's quite nice to have information of all these different options and procedures that may or may not happen. Someone wrote in, can you get induced for a VBAC? And can you explain for people who don't know what a VBAC is? Yep. Yeah, so uh, a VBAC is a vaginal birth after cesarean and you can be induced provided that your care provider is comfortable with that. So the reason that it won't be offered as quickly, I guess, as someone who hasn't had a cesarean is that you have a scar on your uterus and we know that the use of the drug that brings on the contractions in an induction slightly increases the chance of something called uterine rupture, which is when that scar um, or, or any part of the uterus comes apart. And so I guess it's one of those situations that's very individualized, very much proceed with caution and just about giving, like you said, Jade, giving them the information and saying, well, this is what we know, you know, how do you feel about this risk and how does your care provider feel about supporting it? Um, so it's going to be very, very case by case. And can you talk a little bit about the big babies? Cause that's a contentious one too, cause often it's on <laughs> ultrasound and then some people are like, oh, but ultrasound 
ultrasound isn't accurate. What's the go there? Because sometimes you hear, oh, I was induced for a big baby and then the baby comes out and it's like three kilos. Like what what should we be thinking about if we are being recommended? Okay, you're 39 weeks pregnant, your bub is on the bigger side, maybe you've got gestational diabetes. What things should we be asking or considering then? It's also scaring the shit out of the mother by saying your baby is large, so if you're going to give birth, it's going to be incredibly painful. Yeah, but that's a really good point, Jade, that a lot of the conversation and a lot of the information is being shared in a fear-based way. Yeah. So f- fear-mongering and saying, well, if you choose to not be induced now, then, you know, prepare to be to have a bad tear and your baby's going to get stuck and all of this stuff, which is really, really terrifying. So it's also important that when we have these conversations with care providers that we're doing it in a really objective way that's not Mm. saying like well just you wait it's going to be horrible unless you take on my recommendation because it's a bit like I told you so situation and what else are you going to do like what else as a 39 week pregnant mum you've got the most precious cargo of your Mm. life on board all you want is a good outcome and then someone's saying to you well if you do this then there's a really good chance they'll get stuck and you know blah 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 of course you are going to take on that recommendation because you're really really frightened in that moment. So I guess the thing with big babies is such a hot topic, but the thing, the reason being is that ultrasound is inaccurate, particularly in the third trimester in terms of measuring growth. We know that they're notoriously inaccurate up to 15 to 20% either side. So, and it gets harder, the bigger your baby gets and and the, the more space they take up in the uterus, the harder it is to get an accurate growth measurement for them. Right. Great. So just when you need it to tell you how big it is, Literally. it's less accurate. That's like when some people go, oh, the forehead thermometers are good, except for if your bub has a fever, then they're inaccurate. And you're like, yeah. well, that's when I need it to be accurate. But I had yeah, a scan totally. at about 36 weeks and someone said in the scan, they were like, oh, that is a huge baby. And it turned out that my placenta was absolutely ginormous, not the baby. So you're right when they say they don't actually know 100% how you big You would your hope baby that is. a sonographer knew the difference between the placenta They and just the said, baby, well, she though. was four kilos, but on top of that, the reason that everything was so big was because my placenta was massive. I gave birth to two babies, really. Yeah, well, totally. I feel you. Poppy was 4.2 kilos and (sighs) I'm a midwife and it was the biggest placenta (gasps) I have ever seen. And I was just like, no wonder I have felt horrific yeah. for the last few weeks. This is Can I also crazy. say this is purely anecdotal and I yeah. know we're trying to talk about real evidence here, but this is purely anecdotal. I've had a three kilo, a 3.5 kilo and a four kilo baby. And granted each time, you know, the canal had been primed because one or two babies had been out of it beforehand. But they all feel big coming out. Can I say that? Correct. Like whether it's three kilos or four kilos, like they don't just pop out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I don't think that the sting ring or what Burning felt like the stretching for me of the four kilo baby actually felt any different to the three kilo baby coming out. It's still a large thing to come out of that space. A hundred percent. And so I guess It's also important to distinguish there's a difference between a baby that appears to be on the bigger side in the absence of gestational diabetes and then when gestational diabetes is present as well as a suspected big baby. Then particularly, not so much if you've had really great glycemic control, so your sugars have been all normal, but in particular if 
potentially the diabetes was picked up late or it hasn't been controlled well. That's a different kettle of fish because the distribution of fat on that little bub can be more concentrated around the shoulders and the neck. And so what we worry about there is something called shoulder dystocia where the head will fit out and then there will be, you know, the the shoulders will have a really difficult time passing through the birth canal. So that's a different conversation altogether to someone who is otherwise well, like yourself, Sophie, with Pearl, like you're otherwise well, there's no reason to believe that this baby won't come out vaginally. It's just a big baby. And more and more and more, I think like Jade, you said you had a four kilo baby, well-nourished women. Most of us in our society where we live are well-nourished. Even if we've had a pretty horrific pregnancy (laughs) of feeling sick, you know, we're nutritionally quite healthy And women are birthing big babies. Like it is not necessarily, I would say to anyone who's concerned about the big baby thing, a big baby does not mean that you won't have a vaginal birth that is not, you know, it doesn't necessarily equal complications. So it is tricky. We could talk about the big baby thing in so much depth, but I would just We'll get you back for that. (laughs) Oh my gosh, we'd have to prepare. But, you know, it is a big conversation. Be wary of third trimester ultrasounds. Be wary of off-the-cuff comments from Mm. people doing the scans because that can also send you into a total tailspin. So if you suspect that you've got, you know, a bigger baby on on board and you've got you've gone for that scan, you might even like to say to the sonographer like, "Oh, do you mind not sharing anything with us? We we'll just chat through the the findings with our doctor. We're just you can even just be honest, just be like, "I'm in my third trimester. I'm kind of in my head at the moment. I'm trying to stay really positive yeah. about birth." Because they don't mean it, but just popping that scanner on and going, oh my goodness, Mm. you've got a big bubber on board. Like, of course you're going to go home and just think, fuck, how am I going to get this kid out? Yeah. Yeah. I've always said, I'm so, so grateful. I didn't know anything about Poppy's size. My daughter, I looked at my midwife afterwards and I was like, did you know about this? (laughs) What? What? And she's like, look, you, you were measuring normal. I, I didn't think you were having a small baby, but there was no reason to believe this baby was too big for you. And she, you know, she wasn't. And so I think have a bit of faith in your body, have a bit of faith that you'll grow a baby that is appropriate for you. And then if you have other risk factors, like gestational diabetes or, you know, maybe a history of a difficult vaginal birth that you want to take into account, have that conversation with your care provider. But big babies alone or suspected big babies, I should say, is actually in the guidelines not recommended as a reason for induction alone. Wow. And so can you just opt for an induction for whatever reason, say it's your second child and you want to make sure your first child is being looked after? Can you walk up to your healthcare provider and say, I would like to be induced? Certainly in the private sector, yes. And the reason that that can't happen in the public is due to the volume. And when we talk about the the processes involved in inducing someone, that will become obvious. There is longer hospital stays, you need more care. And just from a resource perspective, that just could not happen. If induction list is already full every single day, we're always playing musical beds to try to get those inductions (laughs) done anyway. And then I guess the other side is that we know outside of the ARRIVE trial and those findings, overall, the research sort of suggests if you're well and you're healthy and you know, there's no major concerns. It's it's usually better just to let you your body do its thing. And so it's sort of a combination of those factors. But ultimately, honestly, it's resources. We just would be drowning. And I do want to say 
how frustrating that would be for a lot of women. I mean, the mental game, especially once you go over 40 weeks, you know, like I went over 40 weeks and I really wanted to go into spontaneous labor and that mental game was still so huge. And I knew that I could request an induction if I wanted to. So I imagine having in the back of your mind also, oh, I'm out of control even of when I could request an induction. That week from 40 to 41 weeks, and I imagine the week from 41 weeks to 42 weeks feels like it's going forever. Mm. And with everyone saying, oh, is that baby still in here? And then some people get in your mind saying, oh, you worried because you're overdue now. And so as much as of course it makes sense due to resourcing and having had inductions, I know that a lot of monitoring's involved. It's still I would I would hate to downplay what that must feel like waiting and not having control over that. Particularly if you've got friends who are being cared for by private obstetricians who yeah. who are feeling very much in control of that decision. I will say beyond 40 weeks, if you were to say I'm ready for an induction, then they would be more likely to take that on on because you're beyond your due date, yeah. but it would just be prior to that. If you were sort of like 38 weeks and you said, I've got two two other kids at home, I really want to let my parents yeah. know when mm. to come and bunk down, they're just going to be like, look, I'm, we can't really accommodate that. But I, I agree with you, Sophie. I want to recognize how tough that could be. Are there different types of inductions? Yes. So I guess let's run through, we've talked about what an induction is in terms of base level it's just us doing something to you to bring on your labor. But I'll kind of run you through the process for what needs to happen for most people. So most people, when you need to bring on labor, we can't just jump straight to the drip, which is the bit that brings on the contractions. We actually need to prime and we often call it ripening. We need to ripen your cervix. So if you think of your cervix before you go into labor as a long, strong, hard structure, If you picture a balloon, it is like the neck of the balloon, the bit that you put your mouth on to blow it up. So it's like a little kind of funnel sitting at the base of a big circle, which is your uterus. That incredible piece of anatomy is sitting there for most people, really firm, really long, and it needs to be softened and changed to like a stretchy texture before it can start dilating, particularly if it's your first baby. So Those of us who have had babies before, that process tends to happen a little bit more quickly because it's been primed before. But when you're having your first baby, the first step in an induction is typically cervical priming. And there's two, three actually, three key ways that we would do that. So the first one and two is using something called a prostaglandin, which is a chemical that has like a hormone-like, it causes a hormone-like response in your body. And some women will get something called a pessary. It looks like a small paper tampon that's infused with prostaglandin. We pop it up there. It sits behind the cervix and it secretes the hormone. And some people will have that same sort of chemical, but in a gel form. And it'll be like a tampon applicator into the vagina. We push it and it puts the gel kind of kind of marinates the cervix for lack of better terminology. <laughs> Feels kind of like semen, to be honest. <laughs> it's really That's yeah. what I had and it's kind of like you get that gloop feeling. Yeah, and we always yeah. say just lie down for half an hour before you go for a walk because it's just going to drip down your leg otherwise. And so those kind of hormone-based inductions, that will typically be left around the cervix for, you know, a number of hours. How long did they leave it for you, Sophie? I had it put on at 4 p.m. and 10 p.m., And then it was just like watch and wait overnight. With my first two, it didn't do anything. With Pearl, it put me into labour. Yeah. Sorry, when I say it didn't do anything, it ripened my cervix, but it didn't 
put me into labor. Yeah. And that's a really good point because sometimes within this process, it can feel frustrating. Like why aren't I in labor? But we just have to respect that there's different stages and each one is doing, it's productive, but it's doing something different. I stayed in hospital overnight with that. Is that generally what happens or do a lot of people go home? Typically you will stay. There are hospitals yep. now that are trialing, sending people home, again, from a musical beds perspective, no doubt. Yeah. And also it, it would be much more comfortable for a lot of people to just come in, get the medication, have some monitoring and go home. But for most people, once we've started giving you medications, mm. you will stay at the hospital and you'll stay there. So typically what happens for a lot of people is that you'll come in in the late afternoon, you'll have some monitoring, we'll give you the gel and then you might sleep overnight and then you might get woken up early in the morning check the cervix, see what's happened, determine if you need another dose. So sometimes when we use these medications, multiple doses are needed to elicit the response that we're after. And then hopefully that cervical priming has opened the cervix enough or softened the cervix enough that we can then break your waters. So that would be step two. And then there is a third option called a balloon catheter, or sometimes it gets called a Cook's catheter. And this is, it's its not a nice word, but we call it mechanical priming. Instead of hormonal priming, we call it mechanical priming. And this is because a, a very thin tube is threaded through the cervix and then a balloon filled with a small amount of water is blown up on either side. So you can imagine that on one side of that little tunnel, there's a balloon and on the other side, on the vagina side of the tunnel, there's another balloon and the balloon filled with water puts gentle pressure on the cervix and it's usually left in for sort of 12 up to 18 hours for some people and that kind of forces the cervix to soften and and thin down and start to open. So we've got a few options of of that first stage and I guess for people wondering well how do I know which one's best for me? Yeah. It's a, there's a few things. Sometimes it's simply your care provider's practice and they go look I always use the gel. We've got really great success with it. It's my kind of pathway of choice. And then there might be factors like, for example, if you're being induced because your little one is on the smaller side and maybe you've had reduced movements, your care provider might go, you know what, I don't really want to put a gel in that then once it's in there, I can't remove it. Because if you were to then have like an adverse reaction or your baby didn't respond well, we've got less wriggle room. So you that in that case, your doctor might say, Let's use a Cook's catheter because if your body doesn't respond well to this or if there's signs that your baby's not coping with the induction process, we just take it out. There's no lingering medication. So we've got this whole host of tools and it comes down to your the clinical picture and then also just what your care provider's practice is around that. So those are sort of like the, the three ways that we would do the first step, which is cervical priming. And think of this step as like mimicking your early labor. If you were at home having like those crampy feelings, back pain, that's your body naturally priming the cervix, getting ready for dilation. This is what we're achieving in that first step. And is the balloon uncomfortable? Like that sounds unpleasant to me. I know that you're probably going to feel things that are more unpleasant, but Is that unpleasant? Can you feel it in there? Yeah. I mean, you are going to feel things that are more unpleasant, but I would argue that things are meant to come out of the cervix, not go into it. So I always say to people, it's valid. If you find this uncomfortable, that's very valid. So again, I've worked at a whole host of different places and everyone does things differently. Where I first worked, we used to give people the gas and air when we would do the insertion. Um, So you can always ask if your care provider starts and you just think, oh my God, that is so tender and you're feeling your pelvic floor tense up and you're just like, oh, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. Ask for some gas and air. 
The other thing that I run you through in positive induction is some tips for pelvic floor relaxation because Mm. that's going to be your best friend. One of the things we don't talk about much when we brief people about induction is we, we don't often say, hey, Induction of labor actually involves a lot more internal examinations. We've yes. got to get up there to give the medication. We've got to get up there to check if it did its job. Then we might have to use a, you know, a balloon and that has a speculum. And that's, I think that we're not doing people as we're kind of doing you an injustice if we don't talk you through yes. that and go, this is quite an involved process. It's not as simple as popping a drip up. So we really need to kind of get you understanding that any tools to make you feel relaxed and at ease and learn to like flop and feel your pelvic floor relax is going to be your friend. Mm. Completely agree. I would say that was one of my biggest surprises when I first got induced was like, oh, you guys are going up there again. What for this time? Like, and you know, you do, it does start to feel quite tender before things have even begun. Exactly. Not in any way that I found unbearable, but yeah, I do wish I'd known that beforehand. Exactly right, Sophie. So we need to be quite vigilant in, in sharing that with people and just say, look, you know, and also if at any point the internals, you're not comfortable with them, they are tender, you just, you know, you don't feel comfortable with the provider, we need your explicit consent to continue. Mm. So it's always okay to just go, sorry, I just, I need, or don't even say sorry, I need you to stop or I need a break or this is not feeling right for me because we don't want you to be feeling on edge before we've even got you into labor. Yes. And then from there, hopefully what you're going to do is have that priming. We've either had the medication or we've had the balloon and your doctor or midwife has returned to check the cervix. We do an internal examination. We feel, okay, is the cervix open enough in order to introduce a hook? And if we can, we will then break your waters. Now, this is done with something called an amni hook. It looks like a crochet or a knitting needle with a tiny little hook on the end. And when I say hook, it's a a little plastic, a piece of plastic with like a little, just a tiny bit of sharpness on the end. And feel reassured that when we introduce that through the vagina, we actually hold it in our hands in a way that the hook should not come into contact with your skin. Yeah. We introduce it through the cervix and we feel for the the sac that's around your baby. And then we use the tip of that hook to break the water around your baby. And that is step two. So the whole point of step one is being able to do step two. And then once your waters have broken, then you would need a cannula. And that is when we start the oxytocin drip. And we actually use something called syntocinin, which is a synthetic version of oxytocin. Oxytocin being the hormone that your body produces that can bring on your contractions. And we infuse that through a pump and hopefully your body responds with contractions. And so in a nutshell, that is the induction process. We've got a lot of people asking, is this more painful than a natural contraction? So it's not necessarily that the the contraction itself is more painful, but what what we know is that the synthetic version of the oxytocin and the chemical that your body produces is identical. Amazing science. Really lucky we have it. But the way that your body responds and the way that it is delivered to your body is different. So in a spontaneous birth, your brain is releasing oxytocin. It is releasing it and sending it down to your uterus to create that contraction pattern. And it is also acting on the part of your brain that we call like the pleasure and reward. So that is also creating a a stress response, making you feel more relaxed, making you feel dopey. And this is very purposeful to help you deal with the intensity of your contractions. So that it's not necessarily what is happening in an induction. It's what's not happening. 
when we are delivering that oxytocin directly to your to your vein, you're not always going to get the oxytocin to your brain. Yeah. And so that is why we start to see, you know, more intense, like stronger contractions coming on quickly. And women or birthing people will say, I found my contractions in mm. in the induction incredibly intense. So it's not the case, like sometimes I'll hear people say a contraction's a contraction, you know, it is what it is. But it's when we are physiologically laboring, there is a whole host of other stuff happening that is built in to help us deal with the intensity. Yeah. The other thing is, is that because in an early labor setting, so when you're not being induced, there is kind of like this ebb and flow thing that happens where for most people, it's just little bumps of oxytocin. You might wake up with cramps one night, you fall back asleep, you know, it can go on and on. And I know, Sophie, that you experienced that with Pearl and I'm sure Jade, I don't know what your labors were like, but do you remember that early phase where you're like, this is actually quite manageable. I can feel my body getting ready, but it's not coming on fast and furious. Totally. Yeah. I was eating Pringles through my contractions at the start. Absolutely. I had like a (laughs) coffee coming on Uber Eats. We had the TV on. It was lovely. Not so much. This is okay. I can do this. With Pearl, the prostin put me into labour, but I don't think it put me into active labour because after about 10 hours, I was still only two centimetres dilated. The prostin is that prostaglandin gel we were talking about that started the ripening. Would that be similar to what uh, going into early stages of spontaneous labour would feel like? Because it was very much like the contractions were manageable. Sometimes they'd be really close together. Sometimes they'd be further apart. I could have a joke here or there. Whereas once the drip started, less jokes. Yeah. Very, very common that people's experience with those those gel and the pessary, so the prostaglandin, will be similar to early labour. Enough to kind of keep you awake, not enough to take your full focus, very incoordinate, not really a pattern. So I guess for some people when we do start the drip and we are in control of we're not, this is not an ebb and a flow, it's a consistent infusion and we're upping it every half an hour, that is often why people don't feel like they get the the ease into labor, they get the, okay, wow, my contractions have started and they are suddenly really long, really strong and close together. Whereas someone who's having a physiological labor might take a while to reach that point of intensity. So, you know, what we know is that a lot of women do say, I found my induction really intense. I found it quite painful. And those are the reasons that we would likely be seeing that. Before we go further with the drip, is there benefits in after you get your waters broken, waiting a while to see if that puts you into labour mm. or is that uncommon? You certainly can ask and for some people, yes, there will be benefits. We just don't know who those people will be. So it's right. worth having a try. For some people, we could break your waters and you would be, you know, walking and waiting for hours and hours and nothing is going to happen. For other people, just that little breather, you know, two, three, four hours in a dark room. For the people who want to try that, absolutely communicate that. And then I would be protecting your space. I'd be doing nipple stimulation because we know that that boosts natural oxytocin. So either pop on a breast pump or get in the shower and just like graze your hands across your nipples I would be trying my best to feel as relaxed and positive as possible and, you know, maybe go for a walk and and do all of that kind of stuff. But like pop your AirPods in, don't have people coming and going, being like, oh my gosh, it's baby day. So exciting. Really focus on, okay, (laughs) I'm trying to let my body feel safe enough to go into labor. What does that look like for me? 
Yeah, because I went up and down the fire stairs in yeah. the building. Um, this is after Goldie, my second, because as soon as they broke my waters, contractions started. But it was silly because there was all these people passing like in their workwear on their way to their rooms or off to work. And I just remember feeling like quite exposed. And I was like, oh, that probably wasn't the right place to try and get <laughs> labour happening. Yeah. And like how, go into the room and like have a snuggle with your partner if you feel up for it and, and like just kind of, you know, look at ultrasound images or if you've got little other ones at home, like look at photos of them and just kind of sink into it a little bit and give your body a chance. I didn't have an induction, but I did have my waters broken all three times. And I just wanted to say on the opposite side of that, I was someone that really liked to be active. Like I found standing up, walking around, walking down the hallway, walking back, really got me in a headspace and got my contractions moving. And the moment that I stopped, and I know everyone's different, but the moment that I stopped and they were like, oh, how about you lay on the bed and have a rest? It would all just slow down a little bit. So I just, I found that locking myself in a cupboard and looking at the towels and moving my hips was the best way for me to really get things moving. And I know everyone is totally different, but I just wanted to share that when the waters did break for me, I felt movement was like a real power. It's because neatly folded towels in a linen cupboard do for you you what other people's partners might do for them. A You're like, oh, I wish my linen closet looked like this at home. <laughs> like, I feel so you know safe and well. secure in here. This is beautiful. Yeah. Why can't <laughs> I fold my towels like this? <laughs> it's true though, Jade, and the privacy that you got was probably yeah. the power there, the movement, getting pressure down on your cervix, moving your hips, and then just feeling like you're in your own little space, no, you know, with your towels, just <laughs> in, in the zone. But it's, it's true. And a lot of women in the hospital system will go say that they'll just say like, oh, I just kind of went into the bathroom. It just felt nice to close a door and know that no one could come near me. Yeah. Birth is primal. And I think going back to what we said at the start of this idea that your birth preferences have to go out the window mm. if you're being induced, they don't. You can still set up your space so that it is private, that it's cozy. You can have your music on. You can use the football, move around, walk, sway your hips. All of that is stuff that I would be recommending for any labour, no matter what that looks like. And isn't it beautiful that you can have all these different options and you can have the list of what you want to try? Because believe me, I tried it all as much as I could. But what wasn't on my list was a cupboard full of towels. And every time (laughs) that's where I ended up. Yeah. I actually spent so much of my labour in my, we had like a little walk-in wardrobe where we used to live (laughs) and it was this dark nook yes. and I just kept fa- would find myself in there and I would just wander <laughs> in with my tens so and I'm like weird. all right I'm here with my clothes you know and it just was so weird that I just wanted to be in this little dark space yeah. it's not weird we know it's very normal but you know yeah definitely just go with your body like if if you find yourself wandering around and doing certain things don't fight it just go with it And I think it's the same with positions as you get further Mm. along in active labour. Like I think I had in my head like, oh, this position would feel really good and then I'd get into it and you almost have this like repulsion. Like I'd be like, oh, my God, no, that's not right. (laughs) I need to get up and do this. Um, And that's okay. It doesn't have to be exactly how you imagined it to be. Exactly. I can't, I could not agree more. It was the bath for me. I got in and I always thought I'd have a water birth and I was like, I hate it in here. And like my midwife's like, oh, my God, get out. Your headspace is gone out the window so 
you, you know, your body knows more than you think. And that's hard to say to someone who hasn't had a baby before, because you, you feel like, you know, nothing and you feel like you don't know, but my goodness, we know so much and your body is so powerful. If you can just quieten down the noise enough to sort of tap into Mm. it. And so the drip started and, you know, the contractions are going and we know we're not secreting, as you said, those kind of pain relief type hormones from the synthetic oxytocin. So what can we do to kind of counteract that? What are good ways to help manage the pain? Yeah. So I always say, look, an induction is not the time to go in and just say, I'm just going to see how I go. I feel like when you know that at a certain point, your contractions are going to come on fast and, and intensely, you need to go in with a really clear idea of what is available to you to work with pain. So for me, I always say have a TENS machine on hand. Oh, my gosh, absolutely. Put it on. Don't wait until they're intense. Put it on, you know, as soon as you start to feel crampy, as soon as you start to feel those contractions that are coming up and getting a little bit more intense, it's time to put your TENS on. Movement is the biggest thing that I would say. I've never come across someone in labor who is comfortable just lying on their back in bed, you know, sheet over their knees. I was watching Friends the other day and Rachel's like (laughs) melting down in labor. And I'm like, doll, of course you are. You're on your back. This would be hell. This would be hell. (laughs) And she probably gave birth to a six-month-old baby that was already on solids. The poor thing. (laughs) She's got a bit on. But, you know, like get out of the bed, sit on the fitball, get on your hands and knees. I love that photo of you, Sophie, that you shared on stories when we were collecting these questions because it is what most women in labour, particularly in an induction, will look like. Mm. The hospital bed is raised. You are leaning over it. You've got the weight of your baby off your back. Your hips are free to move. You know, that is kind of the positions that we would say, just follow your body, get into those positions. From there, you've got things like heat packs, particularly in the prostaglandin, in the ripening phase, have some heat packs on hand because you might find that your uterus is a bit irritable and uncomfortable. We've got things like the gas and air. You can get in the shower in an induction of labor. You don't have to avoid water altogether. And then, of course, we've got all of the kind of pharmacological options. So, you know, the epidural. And so you've got a whole host of things to reach for at different times, but go in with an understanding of what each of those are to sort of get your head around when to ask for things and and all of that kind of stuff. So if you had in your head that you really do want an epidural, is it a good idea to have this at the start before everything's begun? If you already know, you are definitely using an epidural at some point. It's not a bad thing to get one earlier. I would say wait until at least you know that the syntocinin is doing its job. Like there are some circumstances where people will get an epidural and then we'll start the drip. Quite rarely though, because, you know, we're giving you it to deal with pain. So if you've got no pain, it can sometimes be a little bit more complex. So I would just say, just wait until, okay, yep, your contractions are coming, but you don't have to wait until you can't take it anymore, for example, and you think, oh my gosh, if you already know, I fully 100% plan to use an epidural, you can get it whenever you want. If you are someone, however, where you go, I am open to whatever, I'm not opposed to the epidural, but I'd really like to just see what happens and and how I respond, then I would say have other tools handy and use them early, like your tens, like getting in the shower, like moving, all of that kind of stuff with the knowledge that at any point you can ask for an epidural. Do epidurals slow things down or is that just a mental thing because you can't feel much? 
Epidurals in a physiological labor will. So often what we see is that when we have an epidural, there's a few things that happen. You lose the pressure on on the cervix sometimes because we're not moving, we're not upright. The other thing is, is that outside of inductions, the way that oxytocin works is that it's a positive feedback mechanism and contractions cause the release of more oxytocin. Pain drives oxytocin release. When we reduce your pain, Ah. we see a drop in natural oxytocin. And so often when we get not always, some some people it doesn't matter, it doesn't affect them, but sometimes and quite commonly when you have an, uh, an epidural in labour, you will then go on to need the oxytocin drip because we need to replace, you know, your, we need to get your contraction pattern back. In an induction, we're already manipulating your oxytocin, so that's not going to happen necessarily because we've already got it going at a rate that is bringing your contractions on. A super common question that came in was once the drip is up and you're in established labour, can the drip then be turned off or does it have to continue? So everyone has individual responses to hormones, right? Even outside of birth, we are all so different in our response to our cycles and all of that kind of stuff. But what happens in pregnancy is you, your oxytocin receptors increase and they get higher and higher as you get beyond sort of 40 weeks and then they peak in labour. So for some people, you'll give a small amount of oxytocin and they've got way too many contractions. It's really intense and we need to pull back and go, okay, this is, you know, we need to find that sweet spot. And for some people, that sweet spot is coming off altogether and their body will continue. More commonly, however, the reason that your body is in good labor, the reason that we've got things going is because we're using a drip. If we were to stop the drip or pull it back, we are not going to move forward. So there is, it's, I call this in the course, the oxytocin sweet spot. We need to give you enough contractions that are going to change your cervix. We are doing you a disservice if we don't push on because we're here to have, you know, we're here Mm, to induce you, we're here to move towards a vaginal birth. But equally, we need to be really cautious that we're not giving you too many contractions because that is stressful for both mom and baby and can lead to, you know, bad outcomes. So That is why the midwife will be in the room with you, tinkering with that pump, asking you how you're feeling. They should be timing your contractions. And if at any point you feel like you are not getting a break and they are just coming crash, you know, like waves crashing over you one after the other and you're not getting that rest period, then yes, we do need to turn it off or bring it down. Well, that was the next question. Do you have to have continuous monitoring? Look, I would say at the end of the day, induction of labor and continuous monitoring tends to be a package deal. And the reason being is that we are manipulating your body to do something that changes the environment that your baby is in. And therefore, your baby is likely to be having, you know, some babies respond really well to that. Some babies don't. And so if we were to do one thing, which is put up the drip and start making your uterus contract without keeping an eye on your beautiful little passenger, that's not safe or responsible practice. And so I always say, look, everything is a choice. We can't force you to wear a monitor. But if you were to say, I'm absolutely not wearing a monitor, then chances are your care provider would say, well, I'm not, I can't administer this drug without it. So have the conversation if it's a concern to you, but realistically, it's a package deal. Once we are using medications and in sort of altering your body's response and and contraction pattern, we have a responsibility to make sure that your baby is coping with that. And do you have any tips for that? Because I found that probably the most frustrating thing of my inductions is that I felt quite hooked up because I was, you know, I had on one arm, I had my cannula attached to a drip. 
you know, I've got continuous monitoring attached around my middle that often, you know, if you move one way, they've got to readjust it. I found that I really needed to get Nick, my husband, involved because I needed him to either like, you know, move the pole with me or just help me with the cords because, you know, if you find yourself in a position that you don't like, you don't want to stay there just because you've got these Mm. things attached to you. I felt that I probably had to be a bit more vocal. And by our third one, he just kind of like knew where to follow me and what to do. But yeah, what tips do you have for that? So I think you've made such a good point. It's one of the limitations is that even if you're having your really active labor and birth, you've got a whole bunch of stuff attached to you. Yeah. So really basic, make sure that the pump that is being used is fully charged. So just if the midwife has it plugged into the wall and that's limiting you, just say like, is there one with a full battery? Because then at least I can take the pole around the room with me. And there will always be one. And if there isn't one, you look, we'll charge it for a bit, but as soon as it's ready, let's get it off the wall. Yeah. The second thing I would say is that you can, with the IV cannula, you can get extent what we call extension tubing, which is just a little bit of extra tube to lengthen the distance between the bag of fluid and your arm. So it just might give you that little bit more mobility to like move and sway without feeling like it's going to tug out of your vein at any moment. And then yes, get your partner involved, whoever's supporting you say, I really need you to be, you know, intuitive and take some ownership over this pole. So that if you see (laughs) me, you know, if you see me moving towards the football and you see that I want to get up again, don't wait for me to constantly be like, babe, can you get the pole? Just be on alert and, you know, be kind of proactive in that role. And then I guess with the monitoring, it can be difficult because as you're moving and as your baby's moving, that monitor can slip out of place we need to rejig it. So there's a few things we can do. You can ask for a second strap to be put over the little disc that's monitoring your baby's heart rate. Sometimes that just secures it in place. If there's a student midwife there, they might be able to help you by kind of like, I've spent so student and not student, so many hours kneeling on the floor, just holding that little monitor so mum can sway, you know, without her. That's our job, right? It's your labor. We want you to move and, and do whatever you need to do, but we need to monitor baby. So sometimes we need to hold it. And then we also have the option of something called a fetal scalp electrode. Now, I don't know if either of you have use these in your labors? I haven't, but I've seen a lot of fiery discussion oh my about gosh. them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I, I want to preface this by saying this is not something that we would just go, oh yeah, chuck on a fetal scalp electrode because what it involves is actually placing a, it's like a little wire screw and it goes, we go up the vagina, we feel for the top of your baby's head and then it clips or screws onto under the first layer of your baby's skin. And it's an electrode that that tracks the heart rate a lot more closely than an external monitor. Now, obviously, just based on that description alone, there are some considerations. This should not be used routinely or downplayed. Parents should know exactly what's happening so that they know what they're consenting to. Often we gloss over it. And I think that's where the controversy comes is that people say, oh, I'm just going to pop a clip on the top yeah. of your baby's head. And you think that they're getting like a little butterfly clip to the, you know, the the hair or something. To the non-existent hair. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and then, you know, you learn that actually something has been inserted under their skin. So it's really important to have an upfront conversation. However, for some mums, I've worked with lots of mums who, like you, Sophie, have been induced multiple times 
And the memory of the first is that, God, it was annoying that the monitor really affected my mobility. And that was kind of the most frustrating part. And they will actually ask, can you please put a clip on once I'm dilated enough? Because then the the strap that we need to keep adjusting can just come off your belly. And you've got something that is just taped to the inside of your leg. It's attached to the top of your baby's head and it tracks the baby's heart rate really closely. If you are someone that the biggest thing that is worrying you in your induction is that you can't move and move in a way that makes you feel good and makes you helps you cope with your contractions and say, for example, you your midwife has to keep getting you out of the shower to adjust and you're like, I am in my groove in the shower, stop, yeah. you know, and it's it's a massive barrier to you feeling good and, and coping and getting into your zone, then it's a tool that we can explore. But I think, like I said, I do want to acknowledge that it's not something just to take light and I acknowledge that there's some controversy around it, but they, you know, they can be for some people a good tool in those circumstances. What are some things you can and can't do during an induction? We had someone write in saying that they'd had two, you know, very incredible for them water births into induced labours. But how does that happen if you're on monitoring? It's very hospital or care provider dependent. So some people, some places will say, no, sorry, you're on the drip. You've got monitoring. You're not a candidate for water birth here. And then others will say, there's no reason, you know, baby's heart rate's well, you don't have a fever, you know, you're otherwise well, we're just bringing on your contractions. So we're happy for you to be in the bath. So for anyone listening, I guess it's just a conversation with your care provider Mm. about what's accessible to you. Honestly, though, the bath is probably the only thing that is put on the cards and taken off again. Usually you are very much encouraged to get in the shower. You're very much encouraged to move around the room as much as you need to. You can sit on the fit ball. You can use all of your other tools. Like if you've done some calm birth meditations, all of that stuff can still play a massive role. And do they tend to happen faster, induced births? Yeah, they do tend to happen faster because often what we we are shortening that early labour phase. Yeah. So we are kind of in control of moving you forward in terms of the intensity of your contractions, whereas someone who's not being induced might be at home for quite a while waiting for that to kind of increase. So that said, some people do have some very long inductions and also maybe the time that you're on the drip is is faster, but keep in mind that you've probably had a hospital stay maybe one or even two nights prior to even getting on the drip. So, I mean, yes and no. Cascade of intervention, what does this mean and is it a legitimate thing? Yeah, so the cascade of intervention refers to when we do one thing, for example, an induction in this case, and then as a result, we see sort of like a snowball effect of needing more and more and more. So an example would be like if you had an induction of labor and then pretty soon into the induction, you're like, I this is really intense. I would like an epidural. And then you get your epidural and we're like, we can't really pick up Bubby's heart rate very well. Let's put a fetal scalp electrode on. And then eventually you get to full dilation, but because of the epidural, you don't feel like you can push very well or, you know, you've been pushing for a long time and eventually need some help with forceps. So that's an example of like a pathway Mm. where potentially one thing led to another thing, led to another thing, led to the ultimate outcome. And that is the idea behind the cascade of intervention. In terms of it being a legitimate thing, yes. So the research very clearly identifies links between the more we do, 
the more you typically need. And certainly not for everyone. You know, for some people, they go in, they have their induction. That's that's all they need. And and they their baby comes and there's no other complications. But for many people, they will reflect and think, oh, you know what, from the, t- the moment I started that induction, it just one thing led to another, led to another. And so that's kind of what that conversation is about and why often we'll just say, look, if you're well and you don't have any concerns and there's no medical reason, sometimes as long as you're comfortable to do so, it's better to leave things alone. And for other people, they'll feel more comfortable going down the induction route. And so after this whole discussion and everything that you do in this space, do you think that inductions deserve the negative press or the bad rap that they get? I think that we need as care providers and maternity service providers, we need to be looking very closely at what the evidence is telling us Mm. and really interrogate whether our practices are as best as they can be. I think that's on us to really think about the way that we are using induction, the way that we are talking to people about induction, the way that we care for people during an induction. I think that is a really valid conversation that definitely needs to happen. And it is happening. There is a lot of focus on induction and the induction rate and that sort of thing. But in terms of the then the conversation on the woman side and the person who has either made the decision to move forward with an induction or needs an induction for medical reasons, I think they deserve some more love, some more support and some more like just a bit more of a cheerleader approach instead of being led into your birth with these just stories like, well, everything you've prepared for is going out the window because that's not true. So I think, like I said at the start, both conversations, both things can be true. As doctors and midwives, we really need to reflect on the role of induction, how we're using it, how we're talking to people about it, the kind of language we're using when we we talk about it. But as someone who, you know, as someone who's had a baby and, and definitely just thinking about all women, I don't think we deserve ever to be just told like, oh, well, get ready, just you wait, strap in. I think that is just not productive. It's not supportive and it's not, there's ways to be honest without being gloomy. And I think that just like with women or birthing people that have cesareans, like you're no less of a mother or a birther or no, you know, no less natural at this gig just because you've required or wanted an induction or a cesarean. It doesn't make you less equipped for the job. Yeah, that stigma needs to end. A hundred percent, especially when people are making informed choices. If they've got all the information in front of them, they've had a really frank discussion with a provider that they trust and they walk away from that going, this is my choice. Then they deserve to be wholeheartedly supported, just like people who choose not to be induced and choose not to take on the recommendation. They deserve our wholehearted support. So do people who are electing or needing induction. Yeah, no one either way should fear the I told you so, no, you know, so... approach. Not that anyone would say that, but even that feeling from anyone. Yeah, and look, I think we all know what it can be like in the parenthood space even. There's just so much yeah. like, oh, well, you know, just you wait, you made your bed, like all of that kind of stuff. And it's just like that just needs to be put to the side. We'll just pass that now. We need to just start looking at people's individual circumstances and going, that's so great that that worked for you. Mm. Here's some information so that you hopefully have a really positive experience. I'm really excited for you. Let me know how you go. 
Well, Beth, thanks to you and this episode and everything that you're doing on your podcast. Hopefully people can have more information and feel more comfortable going in with their births and having a good outcome no matter what they end up doing. Thank you so much, Jade, and thank you guys for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.